Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 22 again as we make our way through God's word. Verse 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And so they said to him, well, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him, into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make ready. And so they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Now, um, before we get into our study this morning, I'm gonna stop and tell you that in Israel, um, on the 9th, August 10th, which was yesterday, by the way, it was Paul's birthday yesterday, just so you know, he finally caught up with me. (laughs) And um, the 9th of Av began August 10th, which was yesterday, and it concludes at nightfall this evening, August 11th. Today is the 9th of Av. Now, some of you who have been around for a while, you understand the significance of that particular date. For some of you, you're going to be hearing this for the first time. But again, um, rather than trying to memorize all the events, I found an article uh, by Rabbi Benjamin Bleck. Uh, he is the Jewish Studies Program at Yeshiva University in Jerusalem. And so I want you to bear with me because um, it's actually mind-boggling. And I like his terminology when he talks about the realm of possibility of these events all occurring is beyond any mathematical probability that the events that happened on the ninth of Av. So I'm quoting Rabbi Bleck. Jewish tradition recognizes that God makes his voice heard in many different ways. One of them is by the connection between events on the calendar and the link between a particular date and a divine message associated with it on a reoccurring basis. The calendar makes clear that history isn't haphazard. It expresses divine order. It indicates God's involvement in the affairs of mankind. It demonstrates the Seder. Now, even that's interesting to me because on the Passover, you celebrate the Seder. The word Seder means order. There's 15 different steps to it. And if I have enough time, I'll take you through them this morning. So basically, he's saying it demonstrates the Seder or the order of a heavenly blessing or curse. Two vivid examples stand out as prime illustrations. One speaks in the language of punishment and retribution. The other, via the loving tone of reward and redemption. The first is the tragic day of the ninth of Av, the feast of Teshba'av. The second is the 15th of Nisan, uh, the day commemorating our liberation from the slavery of Egypt celebrated ever since as the festival of Passover. Our Bible study this morning is on the Passover. The ninth day of the month of Av has four millennia being identified with the most terrible tragedies of Jewish history. It is almost beyond belief and certainly far beyond statistical probability that one and the same day could have served as the identical date for the great catastrophes to befall the Jewish people. For instance, on the ninth of Nav, the uh, of the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. We studied this when we go through Daniel and Jeremiah, uh, when Solomon's temple was destroyed. It was on the ninth of Av. That alone would have been enough to become marked as the day of national fasting and mourning. But history uh, reconfirmed that Tish Baav 
tragic reality, five centuries later, when the Romans approached the second temple and put it to torch, the Jews were shocked to realize that their second temple was destroyed on exactly the same day as the first. Now I have to skip through the article because there's so many examples throughout history. I'm just gonna hit some of the highlights and let you do your own homework on this. The first crusade was declared by Pope Urban II on July 20th, 1095. And when Jews look at their calendar, they realized to this great concentration that the the Hebrew date was the 9th of Av. 10,000 Jews were brutally slain in the first month in Jewish communities in France. And the Rhineland was disseminated. A grand total of 1.2 million Jews were killed by this crusade that started, you guessed it, on the 9th of Av. The Jews were expelled from England on July 25th, 1290, the 9th day of Av. Similarly, the Jews were expelled from France on July 21st, 1306, the 9th day of Av. In 1492, the Golden Age of Spain came to a close when King Is- Queen Isabel and her husband Ferdinand ordered the Jews be banished from the land for the greater glory of the church and the Christian religion. The edict of the expulsion was signed on March 31st, 1492, and the Jews were given exactly four months to put their affairs in order and leave the country. The Hebrew date on which no Jews were allowed any longer to remain in the land where they had enjoyed welcome and prosperity for centuries, of course, you know, it was the ninth of Av. But this is what the ones that got me. More recently, Historians agree that World War II and the Holocaust were actually the long, drawn-out conclusion of World War I, which began in 1914. A woman named Barbara Techman wrote a book about the First Great World War, which she called The Guns of August. Had a Jewish scholar written the book, perhaps it would have been titled with more specific date than just a month. Yes, amazingly enough, the First World War also began on the Hebrew calendar of the 9th of Av. And still more, on August 2nd, 1941, on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, SS Commander Hemrick Heimler received approval from the Nazi party for the final solution. One year later, to the day, the plan was formally implemented The plan was for the genocide elimination of the entire Jewish people. Now, if you were here last week, please go back and get that study that uh, we did quite a bit of research on why anti-Semitism is a part of Satan's plan. Remember, all the way back from Genesis chapter 3. So on the 9th of Av... um, July 23rd, 1972, the mass deportation of all the Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto began en route to the death camps to Auschwitz and Birkenau and those scattered around. The article goes on and on and on. I'm just giving you a little taste. All to say, what? Today, as we're starting this Bible study, it ties into Passover, but we're having this Bible study on the 9th of Av. And I just go, no way. And I see, I see the Lord's hand in big things, and I see him in little things, but nothing gives me more confidence to speak than I know that the Lord somehow has his hand in it and upon it. Good place for an amen. amen. So with that as a background, let's go to our text and, um, that we just uh, read, and they prepared uh, the Passover. This morning, the ninth of Av, we'll look at uh, the Jewish feasts. I'm going to be holding up a map. We're going to put it up on a screen later. And I want you to know that you're going to want this and you can pick one up on the welcome table on, on the way out. Uh, as we look at the Jewish feast, especially Passover and unleavened bread, sometimes these two feasts are simply called Passover. They actually go together. Unleavened bread and Passover sometimes are called just Passover. And sometimes it's called unleavened bread and Passover. But sometimes they're put together. So the question is, what is Passover? Again, I don't want to take for granted 
Some of you old-timers here, this is, um, of course, things you know very, very well. But if you're new in the Lord and you're beginning to make the connection, how the things in the Old Testament are simply foreshadows of what's going to be. It's what I like to call for every New Testament teaching we have the Old Testament picture. And nothing is more graphic and the main point of what I'm eventually going to want to get around to is a picture of our Christian walk from the time even before we're saved, the process through being saved, and then continuing on in faith is all pictured and wrapped around what we call the Passover. The background to this feast um, begins in Exodus chapter 11 and 12. So let's make our way back this morning to the book of Exodus. And again, the best way to explain it is to read it. I personally wish more pastors today would speak less and read the Bible more. Probably another good place for an amen. (laughs) Instead of uh, personalities in the pulpit, um, my Bible says that God himself holds his word above his own name. So I wish people would do more reading and um, less talking. So we find in chapter 11, the best description, the children of Israel were in bitter bondage as slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. 400 years earlier, Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, was sent on a slave train, ended up in Egypt working for Potiphar, falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison, interpreted dreams that got the attention of the Pharaoh, who he interpreted his dreams. And we find Joseph, I I like to call it going from the pit to the pinnacle, because his brothers threw him in a pit, but God raised him up to be the most second, most powerful man in the entire world. And uh, he was favored And you know the story that um, um, Jacob finally came, his family came, and they they were respected. But then there's this verse that says, but there then arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And they went from people living in freedom and prosperity to bitter bondage for 400 years. They lived uh, as slaves to the Egyptians. So let's pick it up uh, in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, chapter 11, this is now the tenth plague. Um, a little bit, in a little bit I'll go back and show you the first one. But to deliver the people, God raised up Moses. And what you're seeing now is a series of ten plagues. Every time a God would display his power through Moses, The Bible says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the people go. Now this is the one that's gonna break Pharaoh's back, but he's still gonna have a hard heart about it. So let's read it, picking it up, verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here together. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt And the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the beasts of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall it be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out! And all the people who follow you 
And after that, I will go out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He wants this last miracle to be done because of significance and the implications that it's going to have to the Christian church and what Passover really is all about. So we read, Pharaoh won't let you go, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. And in the back of your head, um, you can see Moses walking out and, and Pharaoh hardening his heart. Um, chapter 12, we need to just look at um, uh, the instructions and exactly how this is to be played out. So we're going to read the first 14 verses of chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And I want you to speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, Now on the tenth day of this month, now this is important. On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for his household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. Each according to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. Now, your lamb has to be without blemish. He has to be a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Now, this is important um, because here you have a one-year-old lamb that you take in your house on the 10th, and you're going to keep it till the 14th. Well, what does that mean? That means for four days, this lamb is living in your house. Have you ever seen anything cuter than a baby lamb? And can you imagine the kids playing with this lamb for four days straight, almost making it a a family pet, and after that affection from the family has been drawn towards this animal, now we read in verse verse 6, you'll keep it until the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lentil and on the house where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roast it in fire with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, this is all important, and your staff in your hands, so you shall eat eat it in haste. And it is the Lord's Passover. In other words, get ready to go after you eat this meal. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of of Egypt. Now let's just stop there. The word, the Passover, feast, comes simply from the fact that when God judges Egypt and kills the firstborn, the Egyptians are not going to be, have killed the lamb. They're not going to take hyssop, dip it in the blood, put it on the top and the tour posts on the side. And the Lord says, when I see the blood on that house, I will pass over. So I take it for granted that everybody gets, that's where we get the word Passover from. 
he passed over their house because of the shedding of the blood of an innocent lamb that they had grown attached to as it was four days in, the, in, the, in that particular house. Now, go back to the beginning of this. Go back to chapter 7. That was the final one. For reasons that will show us the description of the struggle of spiritual warfare in a Christian's life, I need to go back to the first miracle that the Lord does, and that's in Exodus 7. We just finished the 10th. The first one is in in verses 8 through 13. God had called Moses. He had given him a rod. Moses said, you shouldn't send me. I can't talk. I'm slow of tongue. He says, why don't you send Aaron? He says, don't worry about it, Moses. I'll speak through you. And so in verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, now when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourself. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called wise men and the sorcerers of the magicians of Egypt. Now I'm going to stop if you're taking notes this morning and have you write down 2 Timothy 3 verse 8. And I'm going to quote it at this point because we don't know their names in the Old Testament. But in 2 Timothy 3 verse 8 it says, Now as Janus and Jambri resisted Moses... So do these who resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapprove concerning the faith. These men right here, there were two in particular. And in the movie, The Ted Commandments, they actually come out and cast down two sticks. And what we find out, that the the sorcerers uh, in Egypt could duplicate the miracles that Moses was doing through the Lord. Second Timothy 3.8 says their names were Janus and Jambri. Now verse 11, verse 12. But every man threw down his rod and they became serpents and Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So already we're making a connection. We're learning something from the New Testament That's not told in the Old Testament. Actually, the names. And we have here, and I'll I'll repeat this a couple times this morning. We have a tug of war going on here. Why is Moses going in? Let my people go. No, I won't do it. They're mine. I'm keeping them. And we actually see the spiritual realm in action, both on the, the sorcerers of Egypt, but also the power of the Lord. And they were able to duplicate several of the plagues that Moses did, but they came to a point where they couldn't do it anymore, and they had to admit only the true God could do the rest of these. Now, with that, um, let's turn to verse 14 of chapter 12, which I failed to read. Let's go back to it. This is the title of my message this morning is Don't Ever Forget. I struggled with that, either calling it the Passover or calling it Don't Ever Forget. I settled on Don't Ever Forget. Verse 14 says, so this day, what day? When the angel of death passed over Egypt and killed the firstborn from Pharaoh's house to the least in the land. So this day, shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. You will keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. I don't want you to forget this night. And I want you every year on the 14th of Nisan, wherever that falls, to commemorate um, this particular um, event. So... Let's turn to the book of Leviticus, and I'm going to put up 
Leviticus chapter 23, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover, this will be helpful for you if you want to study it more. And I'll give you a chance to get to Leviticus 23. And on screen right now um, are the seven Jewish feasts. And again, we printed these out so you can take them home. And the scriptures that I'm actually going to be teaching from this morning um, are in Passover and Unleavened Bread. Uh, It was a three-day period of time. And uh, like I said earlier, sometimes they just... When they say unleavened bread, they're simply referring to the connection with the Passover. So here we have the seven Jewish feasts. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles. We find that the first four um, fulfill that Jesus' first coming, and the last three will be fulfilled at the Lord's second coming. So now that we have, if you're in Luke 20, uh, Leviticus 23, uh, for sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Um, if your Bible is like mine, it just tells you what the feasts are. We have um, the Sabbath in verses 1 and 3. We have Passover in verses 4 and 5. We have unleavened bread 6 through 8. We have first fruits in 9 through 14. We have Pentecost in verses 15 to 27. Um, Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah Hashanah, in verses 23 to 25. The Day of Atonement in verses 26 to 32. And uh, Tabernacles or Sukkot on uh, 33 through the end of the chapter. Leviticus chapter 23 is the feasts and three of them Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles, or Sukkot. If you were a Jewish man, and you would make an annual pilgrimage once a year to these three feasts. And uh, this was to be commemorated from generation to generation to generation. Now, with that on screen, I want to go back now to and make the connection, let's go back to our text, to Luke chapter 22. This is where the term, when the Lord says, go prepare the Passover, he was simply engaged in an activity that had been going on for all these generations. If you were a Jewish man, and Passover was nigh, then he's ready to go, and um, he tells the guys to go and prepare for The Passover. So in verses 14 through 18, and when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he knows this is the last one he's going to have with him on this side of being until we have the wedding banquet of Christ. And then he said to him, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. As we look at um, the fulfillment in verses 14 through 20, 19 and 20, I'm going to come back to, but let's read it. So the Lord took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and he says, this now is my body, which is given for you. Now remember, this is a Passover, and this would be different. Um, I got a little time here. Um, What's called the Seder, or order, I'm just gonna lightly touch on how it would have been done. Um, The Passover Seder, or the word order, is a feast that includes reading, drinking wine, telling stories, eating special food, singing, and other Passover traditions. Um, the biblical command, Seder, is held after nightfall on the first night of Passover on the second night if you live outside of Israel. 
The anniversary of our nation's miraculous exodus from Egypt slavery more than 3,000 years ago. Gang, that's a long time. <laughs> 3,000 years. And uh, what's on the menu? Well, without getting into too much steps, they had four cups of wine, veggies dipped in salt water, flat dried crackers like bread called matzah. That's why when we take communion, it has the stripes on it. Bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter bondage that they were in. The Lord did not want them to forget. Uh, Horseradish, uh, romaine uh, lettuce. Aren't you glad you're knowing all this? Makes you hungry. A festive meal that may contain time-honored favorites like chicken soup and certain steps of fish. And it gets very detailed in laying out. But that would have been a traditional meal that would have been set for Passover. Something new is happening here. Because all of a sudden, the Lord is associating the very feast of Passover with none other than himself. Pick it up in verse 19. He says, all that tradition for all those years was pointing to one time, and this is it right here. In verse 19, he took bread, gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup afterwards, saying, this cup is a new covenant. What was the old? Well, it was the law. And the tradition of keeping the Sabbath perpetually from generation to generation. And all of a sudden, the Lord is saying, that all changed right here, right now. Because I'm the fulfillment. John the Baptist in John 129, if you're taking notes, when he sees Jesus for the first time, The father said, you will know he's the Messiah when you see the Holy Spirit come down him and light upon him. And when you see him, that's the Messiah. And John saw it. And when he saw it, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How was he the Lamb? His blood was shed. He was the Lamb of God, a picture of the Passover whose blood was shed And when it's applied to a person's home, in this case, my body, your body. And so now he's telling his disciples, we call it communion. And um, basically, when we, we could read it two ways. We could say, do this in remembrance of me. You know what else we could say? Don't ever forget. Good place for an amen. Don't ever forget what the main thing is all about. The main thing of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus shed his blood. He is the Passover lamb who when you apply his blood to your life, death passes over you. And there's a distinction in the Old Testament it was between the Egyptians, which is, I'm gonna get in detail, a picture of the world, versus God's people who were literally untouched or scathed by any of the judgments that came upon them. So this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Now, when I believe Paul was a writer to the book of Hebrews, you know, if, if you were brought up in Jewish tradition, I, I, w- I would liken it to somebody who came out of a very structured denomination, and then you realize that, well, works don't save me. Sacraments don't save me. You know what? There's no such thing as purgatory. That's not in the Bible. But all these things are so deeply ingrained in you that to come out from that is really a struggle. I remember we had one guy here. He was a, <laughs> a teacher at the uh, uh, Catholic grade school. Had a high position. And in those days, uh, before Time Warner Cable removed religious broadcasting, and, uh, we were on statewide. And um, he would catch us and watch us. He was interested. So he would show up for about two years after every Sunday morning service, and he would get the tape Now, it's okay for me to say it, because back then it was tapes, okay? And then he would leave, because for sure, if he stayed any longer, lightning would come out of heaven and strike him dead for being in any other church than the only true church. Well, after two years, he got up, he figured it out. And the reason I'm telling you this is this is what the Apostle Paul had to explain in the book of Hebrews. He had to explain the new covenant. 
why Jesus is greater than the old covenant, why he's greater than the angels. He's a priest, but not after the order of the Levitical priesthood, but after the order of Melchizedek, who has no beginning and no end. Imagine being steeped in Judaism. We've all seen Fiddler on the Roof, right? What's the key song? What's it all about? Tradition. (laughs) It's our tradition. This is the way we do it. We don't do it any other way. So imagine a struggle that a Jewish person would have to go through when Jesus said, okay, everything's changed. I'm the fulfillment of Passover. And I'm the one who's going to be the Passover lamb. And it's not going to be a Seder that, that, um, that you've practiced for the last 3,000 years or whatever. So if you're still in, um, um, where do we leave off? Oh, uh, this is the new covenant of blood which is shed for you. Now, I'd like you to turn with me because on the chart you'll notice up there is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll do a little rabbit trail thing here. But I want to give you just two scriptures that they quote on the Feast of Passover. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, and we're looking at verses 7 and 8. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, notice, our Passover was sanctified for us. Therefore, let us not keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice, of wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is where we're going to do our little sidetrack. These two scriptures that Paul throws in here, you have to keep it in context. Why did he say what he was just saying? So I'm going to read verses uh, 5 through 6 so you can understand the context of why he said Christ is our Passover. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Why would he say that? Well, here's the reason. And even before I read this, I've been to Corinth uh, just one time. And um, um, it's basically in ruins, but... In Paul's day, in writing to Corinth, I, want, I just want to give you some sort of ideal just how bad the sexual immorality was in Corinth. So I, I Googled this yesterday. Corinth, Greece, temples of Aphrodite, Apollo, and Poseidon. Um, it's just a paragraph long. To that temple, there were attached 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes. How's that for an oxymoron? (laughs) And that at evening they descended from the Acropolis and applied their trade upon the streets of Corinth until it even became a Greek proverb. It is not every man who can afford a journey to Corinth. Of equal fame in Corinth was the temple of Poseidon. So in other words, every weekend, here you have a thousand prostitutes coming down and collecting for the temple. That's how sexually immoral Corinth was. Okay, now imagine a church being planted there. Could you see how they could be pretty screwed up when it came to the culture and allowing the culture to come into the church rather than keeping the church doing the influencing? What's happening here and what I'm about to read is evidently the culture was influencing the church rather than the other way around. Let's read verses one through five. Paul says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't even do this stuff. That a man has his father's wife. And you're puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed am absent. Paul's not there. He's writing this in a letter. I am absent in body but present in spirit. And I've already judged as though I were present. Oh, you're not supposed to judge anybody. The Bible says don't judge or you'll be judged. In the context of knowing a person's motive of why he does what he does, but not here. This was blatant. Here is a guy, and it tells us the whole church is aware of it. 
They're not mourning. They're walking on eggshells around this activity that was actually in the church of Corinth. Uh, Concerning him who has done this deed. Paul pulls no punches. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Notice that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Did you catch that? What it's telling us, is this guy saved? No. He's saying, kick him out, let the devil work him over for a while. Hopefully he'll repent and that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, apply discipline. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul's concerned for the whole church. And here is this awareness that there was this fair incest thing going on, and instead of dealing with it, they don't. Now the context of where we get the verses here. A little leaven leavens the old lump, so what does Paul say? Get rid of it. Get rid of that leaven. Uh, Since truly our unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us come to the feast not with old malice, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread and sincerity and truth. Okay, a little sidetrack here. Um, especially, <laughs> gang, I don't, I don't see any difference between the United States of America and its morality and Corinth. Is everybody pretty much with me on that one? I mean, it's just taken for granted. This is, you don't, you know, you don't get married, you just sleep together. And um, children are being taught sex education in kindergarten on up from, well, I don't even know what to go there. You, you know what I'm talking about. And just what's there. The question is, are we going to stand up, expose it for what it is, and say that if you live that lifestyle, and at this point I'd like to say this, if you are in an ongoing sexual relationship outside of marriage, Let me qualify that. I'm not talking about a one-time slip-up sometime in your life like David and Bathsheba. David blew it, but he repented. I'm talking about something that's unrepentive. This guy was going to church on Sunday and having this affair the rest of the time, and it was ongoing. So there's a distinction and a difference between the two. Everybody with me? Okay, so um, turn the page to chapter 6, verse 9. Because of the culture that we live in, it's tolerated and acceptable in many churches. And we read in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, this warning. And the warning is, uh, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. This guy was deceived. He says, I could mess around on the side. Go to church on Sunday. Yeah, there's other people that know about it. So what? And he thought he was a Christian. And Paul says, no, he's not. Turn him over to to Satan. Pray for the destruction of his flesh. (laughs) I pray for my old best friends that are not saved. You know how I pray for them? Lord, whatever it takes, throw them in jail. Let them get busted. Let their whole life fall apart. I don't care. But if it means them repenting, and coming to know you, so be it. I don't care what they have to go through to get there, just so they get there. That's a good place for an amen. amen. But you gotta stand your ground on these issues. We cannot compromise. Compromise. He says, neither fornicator nor idolater. Well, that's this guy. Nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Um, a year from now, I could probably get thrown in jail for reading what I just read nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means they're not saved and they're not going to heaven. But they're deceived in thinking that they are. But notice verse 11. And such were some of you. I know that applies to me personally. Past tense, BC. But you were washed and now you're sanctified. What does that mean? Well, I put the blood on my board my uh, lentils, my doorpost, by the blood of the lamb. He took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. So he said, and you were washed, how? By the blood of the lamb. 
but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God. God will forgive you. So all this to say this, live streaming, wherever you are, here, if you're messing around, you're deceived by thinking all is well between you and the Lord and that you're going to heaven. You are not. You're deceived in thinking that you are. Um, and the list is not just categorized to uh, homosexuals, but to thieves and to um, adultery is having sex um, while you're married to another woman. Fornication is simply um, um, sex with, between two unmarried people that haven't been married. So God will forgive you, and I want to show you the gracious side of this. So turn with me quickly to John chapter 8. Here's one of my favorite stories in the scriptures. Here's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And I can't read the whole thing, but the gist of it is they're trying to trap the Lord so they know where this prostitute lives uh, she's having an adulterous affair, and she, um, they set it up, the Pharisees set it up. It's interesting, always interesting to me, for me that the Pharisees knew exactly where this house was. <laughs> and uh, they bust her and the guy, and um, in the very act, verse four, and they bring the woman and throw her down before Jesus and it says, the law commanded that such should be sown. But what do you say, Jesus? Well, we have a couple problems with what was just said. That's not what the law says. The law says bring both of them, not just the woman, the other guy too. And the old saying, takes two to tangle. Well, they only brought the woman. They didn't care about her. I wonder who the other guy was. And this I said, testing him. And so he looked around and he stooped down on the ground and he started writing and ignoring them. And nobody knows for sure what he was writing, but I was sure it was something like, you liar. And he looked up at the oldest one there, and then he'd write another name down. He said, you thief. And then that guy, would he was gone. And one by one, it says from the oldest to the youngest, they're all gone. Because the Lord said he was without sin, let him cast the first stone. So he's... He is um, a friend of sinners, but keeping um, the law at the same time. He says, okay, you can do that if you're, with, you're without sin. Then he looks up and everybody's gone. He's left with just him and the woman. And she's a prostitute, bottom line. And Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, um, no one. Lord, that's important because that no one Lord is the same sort of prayer of repentance of the thief on the cross who said, will you remember me, Lord? That was his sinner's prayer, never baptized, never had any good works, had nothing going for him. And here he says to this prostitute, she says, well, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. She realized who Jesus was. Oh, she had heard of Jesus. And now she's experiencing his grace and his love. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you because he's forgiving her and only God can forgive sins. Go and get six months of sexual counseling because you really need it, girl. No, it's simply stop it. Everybody understand that? If you're involved with that, stop it. Quit. The word repent means just stop doing it and just make it right. That's what repentance is all about. And um, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's not condoning what she was doing. He forgave the fact that she did. But because 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is so to the point that if you're involved with messing around while thinking you're a Christian, you're not going to heaven. But on the second hand, if you simply repent of it today, if you're in there, you know, if you're doing it, you know how convicted you are, you're not sleeping at night, everything. Everything's off kilter. Just make it right. 
today. This is my little rabbit trail this morning to get sidetracked, but it was part of, I didn't just pick this out specially to talk to anybody in particular because I really don't know. So let's go on. Feast of Passover is really an Old Testament picture of the Christian life before, during, and after conversion. All right, let's just think of this, that all of all the scriptures in the Old Testament, especially when it pertains to Egypt and um, Passover, the deliverance, what happened before, during, and after. What are you like? What was I like before um, I applied the blood to my house? Well, quite frankly, I was in bondage. And so were you. Bondage to what? The world that we live in. Egypt is always emblematic of the world. Whenever it refers to Egypt, it means the world. Come out from among them. That's what the word church means. Come out of of the world. So before you're a Christian, you're in bondage. And then um, we have, and this is um, something that's very, very important to understand and giving your life, and the real warfare that goes on when you're in that in-between stage. I'd like to have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. So you're in bondage. What we see in the 10 plagues is basically what? I see a wrestling match going on between Moses wanting to deliver them and Pharaoh, a picture of our adversary, the devil, Wanting to keep us. Keep us where? In bondage. What does the Lord want to do? He wants to set them free. What I want you to understand here and see is spiritual warfare. And the greatest time of spiritual warfare is going to be when you're in that in-between place. You hear the message. You realize that, oh, there's power over here on this side, Janice and Jambri. They can do things to keep us here. And then Moses' serpent seems to be wanting to set us free. And what we have is a tug of war going on over your soul. And in Matthew chapter 13, it actually talks about it in the parable of the sower. Let's pick it up in verse 1. On the first day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered to, to him, so that he got in a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then he spoke to them in a parable, saying, Behold, a sower went out, to sow. That's what we're doing this morning. We're taking the word of God. We read later that the seed is the word of God. And we're just going like this. Just throwing it out there. And the parable teaches that it lands on four different kinds of hearts. Okay, I'm interested in the first one this morning. Where it says, And he sowed, and some fell by the wayside. In other words, they heard the gospel. And the birds came and devoured them. All right, let's just stop there because the disciples cornered him and said, Lord, the parable that you just told, would you please tell us exactly what that means? So if you go now to verse 18, Jesus explains, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes. All right, so now the birds, we find out who they are. They're demons, The wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. Do you see spiritual warfare there? The seed has been given. The devil doesn't want you to leave Egypt. He wants to keep you in bondage. So he steals that seed, and this person never comes around. The last two, one brings forth no fruit, but they're saved, and the last one is the one you want to be that brings forth the fruit a hundredfold. But my point is once you're in the middle of making that decision, should I give my life to Christ? What are my friends going to think? What about the guys in the office? And you got all this stuff going around in your head. And it's really spiritual warfare. And then, just as Janice and Jambri resisted Moses, so there's a tug of war over you. Now, let's presume that all of us are past that stage. We applied the blood. We, we recognize the warfare, but we applied the blood anyway. And it set you free when you applied the blood of the lamb, and now death passes over you. 
So then what? What happens after you become a Christian? Well, in Acts chapter two, they asked that question. And Peter said to them, repent, number one, believe, number two, and be baptized, number three. So here's where the picture continues. Even after they were saved, Pharaoh goes out, Yul Brenner, I should say, (laughs) goes out after him, and here's Moses trapped against the sea. And they're cornered. So the Lord parts the water. They walk through on dry land, and they make it through, but the Egyptians, when they're in the middle of it, the Lord causes the water to fall back upon them. My friends, it's a picture. What happens after the blood's applied? Well, you get baptized. Was that biblical? If you're taking notes, just down, write down uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Um, it's an Old Testament picture of them going through the Dead Sea. 1 Corinthians 10, when, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers that were under the cloud all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. It's a picture. All ate the same spiritual food. Now this is important. What do we tell people after they first come to the Lord? I tell them, look out. You're going to be under attack. And your decision is going to be contested to try to get you not to follow. So the Lord, and we tell them, make sure that you get into the word. Isn't that what we say? Find a church that teaches the Bible and get into the word. And, um, and they all ate the same spiritual food. So now they begin their walk of faith. What did God give them every day for 40 years? Manna, the bread from heaven. Some didn't like it. Some complained. Ah, we're sick of this manna. Um, day after day, it's the same old thing. Can't we spice things up a little bit and do things a little bit differently? No, the foundation of the church was established on the apostles' doctrine. Good place for an amen. <laughs> Which was Bible study, fellowship. Got a dinner six coming up. We do that all the time anyway. Oh, breaking of bread, communion, and prayer. That's the foundation of the church gang. And that's what the Lord wants you to do from the time you leave the world until the time that you enter into his kingdom. The church today is not happy with that. They want to spice things up uh, and doing all kinds of stuff that, um, and there was a mixed multitude that came out arguing with Moses all the time. But the Lord tells us that, um, uh, let's go back to Exodus 14. I want you to see the only thing that actually died as they were going through. Exodus chapter 14, I gotta watch my time here. Exodus 14, verse 28 through 31. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came out into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on the right and on the left. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. So what died in the water? The answer, only the Egyptians. What are they emblematic of? The world. What are you saying according to Romans chapter six when you're baptized? If you're taking notes, I'll read it for you. Romans six, verses three and four. Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized... Unto Christ were baptized into his death. You're dying to the old life. Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Something died in the Red Sea and it was the world. We have, have it in picture form. So again, now what do you do from here on out to survive? Well again, we're talking two million people in the wilderness. First Corinthians 10 tells us that they were watered by that rock that was Christ, that followed them. 
and that they ate manna during this period of time. Well, John 6, again, if you're taking notes, Jesus said, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then he says, Jesus said, most assuredly I say unto you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he says, I am the bread of life. My Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, Genesis to Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You do that, you will be sustained, and um, you, the true bread is actually the Lord himself. All right, I need to close it up, so let's close it up by going back to Luke chapter 22. And just two verses, 19 and 20, as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke. And again, I'll read it. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, don't ever forget. Don't ever forget what happened. For Passover is only a picture of the real Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. John six fifty one. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. Once a month we have communion. Why? We don't ever want to forget. Today's the ninth of Av. I think that's very, very interesting. I think it's probably just a coincidence, but very interesting, none the same. Good place for an amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we see as they prepared for the Passover that things were going to change. And you explained to the disciples the new covenant that would be established. Lord, help us always be satisfied with the word of God, our manna. Not adding anything to it, not taking away anything from it. For it has the power that our faith that we have actually comes by hearing this book. And so in a world of moral decline, just like Corinth, Lord, help us um, keep ourselves right before you with a clear conscience as Paul would say. So Lord uh, we give you the rest of this day in Jesus name I pray. Amen. Wall to them on the right and on the left so the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. So what died in the water? The answer only the Egyptians. What are they emblematic of? The world. What are you saying according to Romans chapter 6 when you're baptized? If you're taking notes, I'll read it for you. Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized unto Christ were baptized into his death? You're dying to the old life. Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Something died in the Red Sea, and it was the world. We have, have it in picture form. So again, now what do you do from here on out to survive? Well, again, we're talking two million people in the wilderness. First Corinthians 10 tells us that they were watered by that rock that was Christ, that followed them, and that they ate manna during this period of time. Well, John 6, again, if you're taking notes, Jesus said, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then he says, Jesus said, most assuredly I say unto you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he says, I am the bread of life. My Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. Genesis to Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You do that, you will be sustained.
and um, you, the true bread is actually the Lord himself. All right, I need to close it up, so let's close it up by going back to Luke chapter 22. And just two verses, 19 and 20, as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke. And again, I'll read it. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, don't ever forget. Don't ever forget what happened. For Passover is only a picture of the real Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Once a month we have communion. Why? We don't ever want to forget. Today's the ninth of Av. I think that's very, very interesting. I think it's probably just a coincidence, but very interesting, none the same. Good place for an amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, And we see, as they prepared for the Passover, that things were going to change. And you explained to the disciples the new covenant that would be established. Lord, help us always be satisfied with the word of God, our manna. Not adding anything to it, not taking away anything from it. For it has the power that our faith that we have actually comes by hearing this book. And so in a world of moral decline, just like Corinth. Lord, help us um, keep ourselves right before you with a clear conscience, as Paul would say. So, Lord, uh, we give you the rest of this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.